From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. October 11th was the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. Pope Francis marked the occasion with a mass at St. Peter's Basilica, and the 11th is also the feast day of St. John the 23rd, who of course was the Pope to call the council. In his homily, Pope Francis reflected on how the Council continues to shape us today. It's a great homily, and we'll link to it in the show notes. A lot of the headlines around the event mentioned how Francis used the occasion to call for communion in the face of polarization. He calls out conservatives and progressives. But here's the quote I love the most. Francis said, Let us rediscover the Council in order to restore primacy to God, to what is essential to a church madly in love with its Lord and with all the men and women whom he loves, to a church that is rich in Jesus and poor in assets, to a church that is free and freeing. This was the path that the council pointed out to the church. I love that. My guest today is one of the very best people to talk to if you want to think about Vatican II and the ways it continues to unfold in the church in our own times. David Gibson is the director of the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham University in New York. The center hosts conversations and events that explore the relationships between faith and contemporary life. David has been there since 2017, arriving after a long career as an award-winning religion journalist, author, and filmmaker. David is the author of two books on Catholicism, The Coming Catholic Church, How the Faithful Are Shaping a New American Catholicism, and The Rule of Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI and His Battle with the Modern World. David co-wrote and co-produced several documentaries on Christianity for CNN and the History Channel, and he co-authored a book on biblical archaeology called Finding Jesus, Faith Fact Forgery. That was the basis of a popular CNN series of the same name. Before coming to Fordham, David worked for six years as national reporter at the Religion News Service and specialized in coverage of the Vatican and the Catholic Church. David is a frequent media commentator and op-ed writer on topics related to the church and religion in America. So as I said, he's just the person you want to talk to about the church really on any topic. In addition to discussing Vatican II, we talked about the ongoing synod process taking place throughout the global church and maybe why engaging culture is a way to overcome polarization and decline in the church. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, David Gibson, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks so much here in uh, in Brooklyn, New York, very trendy Brooklyn, New York, where we're trying to keep up with everything. <laughs> We're going to be right on trend today because we're talking about, well, at first, the anniversary of the start of Vatican II, which you would say, like, that's 60 years ago, not all that on trend. But there are all kinds of think pieces and people talking about Vatican II. And you can go back 10 years ago and there were even more of them at the 50th anniversary. Yeah, all these round number anniversaries uh, lead us to think about what does this all mean? And I think with the the caveat, um, as Michael Sean Winters wrote, in a NCR this week, uh, quoting a mentor of his, it takes a hundred years for a church to receive a council. So while things can feel long ago in uh, our fast-paced media environment, in church time, this is still very fresh and new. So I, I do want to ask you, as someone who watches the church, writes about the church, participates in church, puts on things, is always thinking about this stuff, swimming in it. 
um, what you're thinking about, what David Gibson's thinking about, as we've just hit the 60th anniversary of the start of the Second Vatican Council uh, this month. Well, I'm thinking that, you know, the, the council ended or started 60 years ago, 1962 to, to 1965, and it's as new as ever. This is as momentum, momentous a time in the church as we've experienced in the last century, let's say. You know, it's it's really remarkable in, in, a, in, in, in part for two reasons, I think, Mike. One is that um, the, the council, you know, it's, you know, you have a council, you had a lot of upheavals, tumult in the world. You know, everybody looks at the Second Vatican Council as this thing, 1962, 1965, a lot of changes came out of that, you know, ecumenism with other churches, relations with other with other religions, Judaism, Islam, the, the mass and the vernacular, all these kinds of things came out of it, a lot of experimentation. Then it then it kind of settled down. Then there was a backlash against it, some would say, under John Paul II, Benedict XVI. Um, in a way, Pope Francis, just in these few years of his papacy, has really revived what the council was supposed to be, this ongoing implementation. As Michael Sean said, it takes 100 years. We're, you know, 60 years into it. So it's really new. And it was meant to be new. The, 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 the Second Vatican Council, as historian John O'Malley said, was not an endpoint. It was the first council not to declare anathemas, define a teaching, this kind of thing. It was a pastoral council. That is by nature a culture, a different kind of culture of church. And Pope Francis, um, who was really the first, you know, Pope really to channel the, the council in that way, is, is making it new and is really implementing it, let's say. He's really picking up that legacy. So in that sense, it's new. And also for the second reason, um, as much as you and I and all of us professional Catholic insiders, uh, we can just talk to each other about, oh, Vatican II this and Vatican II that. Everybody else is thinking, Vatican II, is that like the Pope's summer home? What is that? You know, there's the Second Vatican Council is new for a whole generation of people. I'm curious. Like, so again, as you said, like sometimes if you, you hear that or it can stand in for certain things, like these kind of top level changes. Uh, but I'm interested more. So when Pope Francis, when you say he's implementing it, um, it's not like, oh, like these kind of top level headline changes. It's, it's something deeper. So what are some of those deeper themes you see like in the the documents of the council that you see kind of echoed in, in Francis's leadership? Fundamentally, Mike, it's really about um it's really a, about, again, a style to re reference, again, my my rabbi on all things councils, uh, the late uh, Father John O'Malley, the very Jesuit historian who recently died. Um, he said it was the style of Vatican II that is so central to it. It's It put the church in a different stance with the modern world. It's hard to remember what a defensive fortress Catholicism we had for so long when popes were prisoners of the Vatican. It really, you know, revolutionized that and didn't do it just on its own. These, these were things that were developing, the liturgical changes, um, relations with other religions, the pope becoming a pilgrim pope, 
leaving the Vatican for the first time. These were all um, you know, dramatic new changes that actually preceded the council and then were, were accelerated um, by the council. And these aren't, you know, there were some uh, doctrinal changes, developments, as we like to call them, on religious freedom, things like that. But essentially, it's a whole different style, uh, a pastoral style, a welcoming style, an inclusive style, an engagement with the world rather than a constant battle, a constant culture war with the world. And so that is really, that's really critical. And that is something that Pope Francis has done more than any, really, I think any Pope since the council. You know, I like to, you know, say uh, Pope John Paul, who I, I, I started working in Rome, I was there for several years in, in the uh, late 1980s, worked at Vatican Radio, traveled around with John Paul II. He was an amazing evangelizer uh, to, the, to the world. He was more like St. Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, than, than St. Peter. And he was a great evangelizer to the world, but he ignored a lot of the problems that were festering within the church. And this is always kind of a, a difficult dynamic. How much do we focus internally on ourselves? And how much do we fulfill the mission given to us, which is to be evangelist, salt and light for the world? That's difficult. And I think Francis basically has said, we need to go out to the peripheries. We need to go out to the world. We need to evangelize. But he said, we cannot do that unless the church itself reforms herself. So it's kind of a, a paradox uh, and it's a two-step uh, dance that uh, he's trying to implement and it's quite difficult. Sure. And I know that, you know, one of the reasons he was elected because the speech he gave at the, you know, the conclave uh, proceedings are about like not being too kind of inward focused, but like kind of being out of the field hospital image. Um, so again, trying to address some of those internal things while also kind of being very outward looking. And he, I always think of like different approaches to evangelization or the style. And I think about, um, rock music. So I'm, I'm an indie music fan. And I think like in my younger, in my younger years, I would have like this band that I liked. And then um, I would want you to know that I liked them and you had never heard of them before. And I was like, gonna like show off to you this thing that I had and kind of you know, I have the truth over here of, you know, the this artistic goodness and you can't access it unless you like get on my level. And then I think of like my brother who's a music professor, PhD, and like someone who has a lot more knowledge than I do. But his way of proceeding is to meet someone, find out what they love and it's like, oh, you might really like this and kind of sharing with them in this this humble way. And I see Francis as someone who has this pearl of great price, he thinks, and as opposed to like, oh, protecting it or lording it over others. He's like, what's going to happen if I share this with you? You can't do anything to like really damage this. Like, let me share this. Um, and I, I feel like that is, is kind of his style as the, um, the non-pretentious lover of something who, who just wants uh, to share it with others. Yeah, and he's much, he's much, it's much less annoying than your approach to music and my approach to almost everything else. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like exactly, I'm, 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 I'm a bad, uh, you know, that that 
much more annoying way of things and people you can see their eyes they can't wait to get out of the conversation <laughs> <laughs> so one of the the pieces uh, written pieces i guess kind of marking the anniversary of the start of the council that was making some waves i know you've replied to some uh, online and i was sitting with and, and thinking about was um a piece by uh, the columnist ross dothit in the new york times who's a conservative columnist i generally find him quite smart, especially when he's talking about politics. He often kind of wades into church things too. He's a convert to Catholicism. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if he's missing some things. It's so hard for someone who has to write columns all the time, you know, to like, you got to kind of do this in a certain amount of words. And often I feel like can get glib and facile. Um, and his kind of like, uh, we can link to the piece so people can, can see it and then hear our reply. And he's not here to defend himself or to answer questions. But some of the points that he that he made, you know, essentially the, the council was needed. The council was kind of failed. And now there's no going back. And that's just what it is. Um, and I, I thought some of your critiques uh, of that of that were, were good. And I'm just curious for you reading that, thinking like, what were some of the things you think would be like, oh, in, ter in terms of creating a more complete picture or reading of the reception of the council, what are some of the details that we want, would want to make sure are, are in that conversation? So yeah, it was what for you stood out as something you'd want to make sure you you bring in there? Well, I want to, um, yeah, and also I, you know, I want to say just as a, as a, side, a side note, um, well, two things. Uh, I'm also a convert to Catholicism. I think there's a whole other podcast we can do another time. It's like there's this huge debate, convert or cradle Catholics, and what is the difference? And um, so I'm I'm one with Ross on that. You know, we're we're very different, I think. And it's I, I, I often think about that whole kind of thing because really, again, this is a great other topic, but there are so many actual converts coming into the church. But for what reasons and what types of folks are they? At one time it was, you know, uh, Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton, and now it's people like Ross and or myself. You know why? You know what's what's drawing people to the church? We need to learn from that. But what are they converting to? And I think that's, you know, when you're not a cradle Catholic, I think that's always a question. And and I think that's uh, something Ross is actually wrestling with. I would suggest. I think years ago he gave a, a lecture, the Erasmus lecture at First Things, where he. He challenged, and he was kind of openly thinking about conservatives needing to come up with a theory of change and development in the church. And I think that's the real, the real difficulty, the real um, uh, roadblock for so many is, especially conservatives. How does the church change? How does it develop? And you know, even this latest um, column of his, and I also just have to say that writing a column, as you said. It, is not the most important job in journalism by far, but it is the hardest job in journalism. You try and write a column, something original, once a week or twice a week, it's almost impossible. That said, this this latest column of Ross's, um, again, I just thought it it um, you know he was he was using a lot of words to try and justify. I think his disappointment in the way things are going. He's a conservative and many other aspects of that term. And so, but again, he's not, you know, it's hard. I mean, not everybody's an expert in church history, but there were just a lot of basic things. You know, the council being a failure. I mean, well, first, he, the, the three points, the council was necessary, the council was a failure, and there's no going back. The council was necessary, he admits, but it sounded like he wanted to make a few discrete changes here and there. That's a fundamental problem. 
you can't just go in and fix one thing or another, um, open up the church to religious freedom, et cetera. It's all part and parcel of an engagement for the, for the, with the world, as we talked about before. This is a reorienting of the church. You can't just change one little thing and then keep everything the same. You can't, you know, open up relations with Jews and still keep those horrible imprecatory prayers against Jews in the liturgy. This is all part and parcel. It's all a very organic kind of thing. So you can't pick and choose. And, and uh, a, a global council was very needed, not just a couple of little uh, tweaks here and there. Um, did it fail? Um, well, it depends on your point of view. I think Ross has a very parochial, I would say, point of view. It's very focused on changes in the United States, which he sees as a, a, a trajectory of decline. And I think there, there are things that have changed, but it's, again, it's causation and correlation. Are some of our problems, are they the result of the changes in the second, that the Second Vatican Council brought in? I really don't think so. There were a lot of other social upheavals going on. Um, the, the, the mass in the vernacular in English has kept a lot of people in. There's been tremendous fruits of, of the council. If anything has hurt the church, it's probably the uh, sex abuse, clergy sex abuse crisis and the cover-ups that happened there that were done under, you know, some of the popes that were John Paul and Benedict who were um, kind of pushing back against the council. So, but the bigger point is, did the council fail? Absolutely not. The church in the last century, and especially since the council has experienced the greatest growth in its entire history. The church, if you look outside the United States in the Southern hemisphere, there's almost 1.3 billion Catholics now, largely in Asia, Africa, Latin America. Are there challenges? Yes. Are there problems? Were they caused? But yes. Were they caused by the council? No, you can't, you can't put everything at the council's doorstep. His last point, you know, there's no going back. Yeah, that's the way it, <laughs> the church only moves forward. There is no going back. There's nothing to go back to. And what you want to go back to never really existed. It's an imaginary world of some kind of lovely Latin mass uh, church that everybody was completely faithful to. The awful history of European Christianity and elsewhere shows that we have not been faithful and we needed something to reform and revive the church. I think, I think too, sometimes like can get, as you're saying, restrict to uh, an American church, which is a very small percentage of a, a bigger global thing. But even the thinking about like, what is the narrative about the, the church in the United States even? Uh, and uh, the, what do the statistics show us? And I had uh, on the show, Tom Gaunt, who's the Jesuit, who's a director of uh, CARA, the research Institute uh, in Washington. And he talked about, no, it's still in the U S even the, the church is growing and maybe in different regions that while churches are closing in some parts of the country, like the Northeast, the Midwest, the biggest question he's hearing from pastors in the Southwest and Southeast is how do we build more parking lots? Like we have to make sure we have enough room for people. Um, so even I think the, the U S narrative is cloudier than the kind of very simple um, steps laid out of decline uh, as you talked about. Yeah, it's exactly Tom. He's exactly right. And he's got the data. And this is something I have to remind myself of, but I am constantly bringing up is that the divide, you know, we're, I mean, I'm in New York, you know, the, the Northeast, Upper Midwest, 
it's kind of the rust belt of Catholicism. It's, you know, it's the old line communities, people leaving, people dying, people not, you know, there is a sort of narrative of decline if you're just up here where Ross Dothit and I are <laughs> live. But um, if you look, you know, if you look at, uh, at the church in a, in a west, east-west um, frame, out west, exactly as, as Tom Gaunt says, it's it's a narrative of growth and how do we cope with this? It's, um, you know, it's a completely different thing. And again, so much of that growth is a result of the approach of the, the Second Vatican Council. Um, so the people, there's so many different ways to worship. And when you talk about immigrants, let's say Latino immigrants, coming from dozens of different countries around Latin America with dozens of different cultures and dozens of different ways of, of being Catholic. We need a church that can welcome and adapt to all of them. I think like, so while, while that is, is true and there, the narrative is a little cloudier than um, a, a column might suggest, uh, there's certainly, and if you look at the, um, the recent, uh, we'll link to this too, the, the national synthesis from the, the synod process, the U.S. bishops. So people who are, I imagine a lot of our listeners were engaged in this process of this big listening session, global listening session. Uh, the U.S. bishops have put out their kind of synthesis as all of those meetings happened in parishes and other places. They go to dioceses, then to regions. They took all that info and kind of wrote this 18 page, I think very fine, uh, synthesis and, and talk about, um, the, the pain of young people especially leaving in some of these places where we are experiencing decline. And I'm thinking about that and then also your comment about you and Ross being converts and having different ways of being and different uh, things that caught your imagination and led you to those those places in, in the church. And I, I think there's there are those questions too, like, oh, how do we keep young people engaged? How do we reach more people? And like, you can get very different answers depending on, on who you ask and, and, and what data you're using. And I'm curious for you at a university and engaging people across different generations, you can have, I know there is like a very loud and strong community of young adults who do love say the Latin maths and who are kind of JP2 Catholics, maybe more traditionalist. And so you would have some who would say like, oh, we need to double down there and like kind of go turn back the clock in some ways uh, that way to like more traditional things, more traditional architecture, music, uh, kind of a stricter church, you know. Uh, and then there are others like, well, OK, like maybe that community does exist and it's loud, but there's just so many others who for whom that is not uh, appealing. And so we need to be more. Uh, welcoming of the LGBT community and need to be even more responsive to the signs of the times. And it, it's not necessarily kind of the retrenchment going back into like this fortress mentality. But again, you could have people showing and lifting up stats for any of those arguments. And I'm curious for you, like, what do you see are, are things we should be keeping in mind for what makes the, the church an appealing place? What are, what are people converting to and, and what are those who of us are in? Uh, what are some of the priorities we might want to have? Well, I think, you know, fundamentally, I think once you've heard one conversion story, you've heard one conversion story. <laughs> so, you know, and it really is true. I mean, there are certain trends and there are certain things you can say, but all of the things you mentioned are all valid. We're a both and church. That's what I love about at, at Catholicism, you know, and and we really risk losing that. Um, and you know, there is no single answer. There are multiple answers and some of them are going to work. Some of them are not. I don't, you know, it's every, we're such a fragmented society. It's, you know, it's such a, 
uh, a different. And it's again, it's not just young people. The, st- the stats also show, you know, young people are unaffiliated for good reasons because they see Christianity as a terrible kind of homophobic, misogynistic, angry, you know, uh, right wing often um, kind of movement. And so they're like, I don't want any part of that. So we Christians fundamentally are our own worst enemies. That's the biggest thing we need to change is our attitude, our way of being, our way of talking. And especially with each other. I mean, you know, they look at us, they're like, why the hell would I want to join that church? You know, it's like that's a battle zone. Um, But we also have to recognize that even people who identify as Catholic, even though they tick the Catholic box, they're not engaged and they're not going either. Older Catholics, how do we engage them? But back to your point, the thing is, um, I think the, the, the real problem is when it, you go from both and Catholicism to either or Catholicism. And it, you know, I, again, not to point the finger of blame at one thing or another, one group or another, but I think it's my real issue with the conservative, the hard right, especially the Latin mass, the old Latin mass folks, the fact that they think that theirs is the way, that if we go strictly with the old Latin mass and the old ways and get rid of those guitars and everything else, that that mass is holier, that that mass, that way of being Catholic is better than other ways of being Catholic. That's not what Catholicism is. The mass is the mass. The Eucharist is the Eucharist. Baptism is baptism. I've been around the world with, you know, traveling with popes and seeing, it's just, it's one of the reasons I converted. I was at the Vatican and converted, which is a miracle of the first order, whoever does that. Um, And again, that's a longer story. But one reason is traveling around the world and seeing incredible masses in Africa, you know, where they wouldn't know, care about a Latin mass if it, you know, was, uh, was, was given to them. It's um, so again, it's really we have this plurality that we need, this diversity that we need, and we can't say that one person's way of being Catholic is superior to another person's way of being Catholic. That is not Catholic, and that's what I push back against. I think we see the, some snapshot of, well, both the the unity and communion and some of the divides reflected quite nicely in this synthesis document that I had mentioned. So again, the, the bishops taking in this feedback in the, in the synod process, which you could we could talk too about how synodality and the emphasis on these list listening and bringing people together is very in continuity with the, the themes of Vatican II. Uh, and so they produced this document a few weeks ago, 18 pages. Again, we can link to that. I'm curious for you as someone kind of looking at that, what stood out to you? Were you surprised by it? I can tell you, I felt like they, there are certain things that made it into there. I thought they would have like not wanted to address, like what have kind of left on the cutting room floor. But they do seem to kind of clearly look at some of the, the issues that are affecting people right now. So I'm just curious for your, for your, your take on that snapshot of the, the U.S. church. Yeah, I was really encouraged and a little bit surprised, I guess. Maybe I'm, yeah, I don't want to get too cynical after years of doing all this Catholic work. But they, um, it was a very, I think, honest and representative snapshot of where Catholics in the United States are. And again, I think it's important not to be too inside baseball, but just to go back and this word synod that you're hearing all of the time, S-Y-N-O-D. Um 
you know, it's people are hearing about it, but honestly, people are like, what is this? You know, and, you know, I don't want to go into too long a discussion, but it is important to realize that <clears throat> synod is a Greek word for walking together. Um, it's essentially, we started talking about the Second Vatican Council, where all the world's bishops gathered in sessions over three years. This um, synods where people would gather on a regular basis, Catholics would gather, um, grew out of that movement. They wanted to keep that conciliar movement, that consultative church movement, that more horizontal church uh, model going um, after the council happened. And that's what synodality is. Synods, groups of meetings where you listen to Catholics. Um, the And again, synod is simply another word for a council. It's the Greek word for the Latin council. It's a gathering, an assembly. Synods are the way the church, one of the great ways the church governed itself for the first millennium of Christianity. We would gotten away from that. And Vatican II really revived that. At the same time, under John Paul, it became a very clerical Roman Curia run institution where people, as Cardinal Bergoglio, now Pope Francis said, he was told what he could say, what he could not say. Bishops every three years would go to Rome to have these great synods and they were pre foreordained conclusions. Pope Francis says, no, we re need a real synod. We need um, frankness, honesty. You can say whatever you want. He's brought in lay people to the Synod of Bishops, women. It's an astonishing revolution in a way, but a revolution that really just goes back to the roots of Catholicism. That's what's going on now. He doesn't want this just to be a Roman thing. He wants every church in every country around the world to practice synodality, to gather Catholics together, to send, to get their feelings, say what they think the need church needs and to send it to Rome and bring everybody together next year, next October to continue this discussion. That's what the U.S. church did. And the U.S. church has been way, for cultural reasons, clerical reasons, has been much further behind other churches. But this national listening session uh, proved to be, I, I was really astonished by it. I don't know what you think, but they, two things. A, people, you know, they really uh, delivered in this synthesis of all of these listening sessions, what people thought, but also was the unity in, among Catholics. And again, you know, we talk about polarization, division, there are real problems out there. But you look at these things. There's a problem with clericalism, that is clergy running things. There's a problem of not enough roles for women, not being a welcoming church to LGBTQ people, to others, to, to people of color, um, not being a transparent church, communicating. What is going on? Why is this bishop being hired? Where's the money going? Where's the accountability? Mike, these are things that really were almost universal across the responses. That's incredibly moving, frankly, that we are really united on so many things. Yeah, and I I agreed, and I saw that, and I thought, oh, wow, and the idea of when you start seeing those patterns, uh, to be able to kind of identify those things from all different contexts, uh, moving. And yeah, I have in the whole synod process and around synodality, and we've had a few episodes of the show with Sister Natalie Beckar and with the Jesuit James Hanvey, who's working in Rome on the synod things. 
we've been we've engaged in it at our own office. I'm thinking about in the back of my mind. Well, when we have as a church such a hierarchical structure, and that um, bishops and especially the pope can decide. And while these synods, I think historically, have been more binding on the church, as John O'Malley has written about. Uh, now, it, they're, again, they kind of offer some ideas, but the, the Pope can still decide. And as a church, we really have so closely bound up priestly ordination with like temporal authority, decision-making authority. And like, while all this stuff is great in my mind, I keep thinking Pope Francis has one lung and he's in his mid to late 80s. And could you have someone who comes in and says, ah, this whole approach, like that's nice, but we're going to just kind of phase that down. Um, like, how do we keep this momentum like how do we sustain this if there are no mechanisms for accountability do we have to change canon law like what what do you th how do you think we take these great you know, these things and like actually then follow up on them that they don't just stay as nice recommendations or reflections uh in a in a document yeah this is the uh, really hard and um <laughs> dramatic and potentially depressing question mike thanks for um thanks for <laughs> taking us there because fundamentally as the Italians say, that which a pope can do, a pope can undo. And that's the kind of church we're in, unfortunately. What, you know, I think the first thing is pray. Second thing is pray for the health of Pope Francis. <laughs> I hope I'm in as good a shape as when, when I'm his, his age. He's going to be 86 in, in, uh, in, uh, in December, which is not that old. But, you know, when you got to run a church, when you have to be pope, that's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, um, he's doing a great job. But um, here is the thing. It's unfortunate that <laughs> it really comes down to almost a kind of a political calculation. Has he appointed enough cardinals to um, elect someone? You don't pick your own successor, but will you elect someone who shares that view of the church. It's really not a question of conservative, liberal, that way or this way. It's really a question of whether you're going to con continue this for listening to the people, the census fidelium, listening to the people of God. Is that going to be the, the way of the church going forward or not? People I talk to in Rome, Sister Natalie is wonderful, Cardinal Breck, so many of them are remarkable. They say, look, this is this process cannot be stopped. I'd love to believe that, but I've seen processes be stopped before. Um, and the Pope has, has, has appointed about two thirds of the, um, of the uh, cardinals who, if he resigned or died tomorrow, would elect his successor. But again, um, you know, is that enough to get somebody who has bought into not just his vision. And again, it goes back to the top of our conversation. This isn't about Pope Francis. This is about the council. Do we have someone who really wants to implement the council's vision of a more consultative church so that we are not dependent on a single election in a conclave, on a single personality um, who can do or undo things? And, you know, I do believe if the culture of the cha church changes enough, that there will be a certain point of no return on this road, this conciliar road of synodality. Uh, but I'm not sure we're there yet. Sure. Yeah, and I, you think too about training and formation of 
priests who, again, I understand like a lot of younger clergy for whom the choice to enter the priesthood is so countercultural and um, it makes their friends and their parents even upset and confused. It can be sometimes that apologetics edge. And I just hope that like while, you know, to help learn those truths and how to teach the truths, that also the style of leadership uh, also comes through. And I, we were both together uh, at this this uh, conference in in Washington run by the Leadership Roundtable, which works with churches to help bring some of like the best practices from the management world, business world into churches. They do a lot of great work and this summit was really a great time. And I had a director of a seminary at my table who like clearly wants these themes in formation. And I was so encouraged because so often you don't, you just hear, oh, seminary training needs to change, but like we don't necessarily know the people who are, who are doing this, it's easy to, Kind of throw stones, and so I was. I left hopeful, at least from that seminary, that the people coming in here we can can help shape them. But yeah, there are the, those questions: like, are we training the next generations of leaders to to approach this way? And you hope that the power of this process and the the fact that I know a lot of priests went into it with skepticism is it just going to be people complaining at me, mm-hmm. but turned into a real people who really love their church and and want the best for it and want to work together, lay and clergy. That there are some you know really beautiful things to to grow from. Um, that yeah, and it there. really is. You know what it's about is is you know <laughs> to 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 be self referential. It's about conversion, and I really think um, again not to be Pollyanna and, and romantic about the idea, but what, what you say you, you talk to people who go through the synod process, and we can roll our eyes. So it's just another talking session. What is this? The experience. Of being, I mean, my experience, my first synod I covered in Rome, 1987, um, was, I was so excited covering this thing. It was the most pro forma, dreary affair. But I covered, I've been to, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, I've been to almost every synod under Pope Francis, except for the synod on the Amazon. And it was a remarkable spirit. And you know, I said to uh, now Cardinal Cherney, Michael Cherney, he's, he, was a, he was a Monsignor at the time, a synod on youth, and the Pope had invited young people into the hall. It was usually just a stuffy hall with a bunch of cardinals and bishops. They were cheering and chanting, and I, I turned to him and I said, this is just amazing. And he had a great line. He said, this uh, Cardinal Cherney, he said, yes, the other synods were good meetings. This is a real synod. And what part of that which means is it's a a conversion experience. It's because you have a genuine experience with your fellow Catholics of the spirit that you can go into it skeptically, even cynically, and it changes you. And so that's what I hope for. We have a lot of problems, seminaries, priests who went into the, go into the, to the priesthood for to, to be a crusader out of a kind of culture war mentality. I'm going to do this or that. And, you know, all of us can be changed by listening to each other and, you know, really letting the spirit um, take charge. I think some of these themes you're reflecting on and thinking about how we are church and how we engage the world is something that you do in your, your daily work at the Center for Religion and Culture at Fordham. And I wanted to maybe wrap up our conversation by asking you about that work as someone who both, again, you're watching and commenting on what's going on, but also engaged in the work itself of 
bringing people together, of listening, of featuring conversations with people who might not agree on certain things. And just what is your approach in terms of working at, at the center? Maybe tell us a little bit about yeah, what the, the mission and the, the aims are and then how maybe what direction you're, you're headed or things that you want to kind of keep digging into uh, in your work there. Well, thanks. So, you know, I'm a career journalist and <clears throat> pardon me, I'm a you know career journalist and um, um, came to Fordham five years ago. Uh, it was a great opportunity. I'm really pleased to be there to direct the Center on Religion and Culture, which was started by Peter and Peggy Steinfels, legendary lay couple, former uh, editors at Commonweal, and he was at the New York Times, and uh, they ran it for for years. Um, but of course, uh, as some would say, some uh, have said to me, "You picked the wrong time to go into public event planning," because I was just getting my feet under me, and then a global pandemic hits, and we shut everything down, and that really has changed. I think the dynamic, and and has has made all of us rethink of what we're doing, and not in a bad way. I think coming out of the pandemic, as we Try to start to turn more to public events to really we're the outward facing kind of unit for Fordham University, as so many other centers like ours are at different universities. So we want to engage people, you know, and we want to draw people in. It's not just a, a Catholic, a Catholic center at a Catholic university doing programming for Catholics. We can't think that way anymore because even people who say there are Catholics are not particularly connected to Catholicism. If you just say, hey, we're going to have a program on synodality, they're going to be like, what is that? I don't care. I'm going to stay home and binge Netflix. Um, and I can't blame them. Coming out of this, we need to, a la Pope Francis, we need to go out to the peripheries. We can't just expect people to come to Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus on a weekday evening to listen to a few talking heads talk about a really terrific topic People aren't going to do that. So one, we need to go out. We need to hold our events where people are. We need to bring in, we're planning to bring in a Trappist brewmaster to a, a, a pub in Brooklyn to talk about being a monk and, and, and brewing beer. You know, that's the kind of thing that we need to do. I want to be much more creative, much more imaginative about how, um, how we reach out to people. Um, I think also fundamentally, uh, we are a center on religion and culture. And you know what that means? It means just about anything we want it to mean. <laughs> you know, it's like, so we have screenings. We did, we sneaked in one event um, last fall, a year ago, uh, when the pandemic, when the virus was not so, uh, but we did a screening of the eyes of Tammy Faye, about Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker. We had Jessica Chastain, Vincent D'Onofrio, come in, did a talk back with 250 young people afterwards. Terrific conversation. Not particularly Catholic, but it was about culture. It was about religion. And it was going out. We had it at a, at a movie theater near our, our campus. Those are the kinds of things that are going to draw people in, not just to get to conversations like this one here, but to conversations about meaning about our society, about our culture, the places where people engage about bigger issues that are not just, you know, the latest dumb tweet that, that I've written, things like that. So, and I, I just, the last, you know, important thing I think to say is as you and I have spoken about, culture in our polarized world, in our polarized church, cultural issues, movies, theater, literature, books, that's actually common ground. Mm 
That's something we can all come together about. Um, there was a, a great um, uh, talk, actually, that um, Pope Francis, he has so many wonderful um, uh, homilies and, and, and speeches. But just the other day, I had to clip this because it's almost like a motto for what we do. He told a group of <clears throat> the canonization of the founder of the Scalabrini's. He said, quote, to make fraternity and social friendship grow, we are called upon to be creative to think outside the box. We are required to open up new spaces where art, music, and staying together become tools for intercultural dynamics, where the richness of the encounter with diversity can be savored. Again, that's, that's a beautiful, frankly, motto for what we do at the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham. But, you know, honestly, maybe what we all, all Catholics, should think about doing. Yeah. And so to me, that strikes me as, well, in the spirit of Vatican II of engaging, which is a very Ignatian spirit, right? Exactly. Finding God in all things, not not cowering in, in a fortress and and uh, putting up strong defenses or rejecting, but engaging, which doesn't mean necessarily endorsing everything either, but engaging. And I think like great art, too, is reflects what it means to be human. And those like questions at the heart of our faith. And so whether it's, you know, poetry, theater, art, architecture, film, things that like dig with, you know, those huge questions. Uh, I recently saw a reading of the the play Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which is about four conservative young adult Catholics. And it was incredible. And I loved it. And it's also like the favorite play of Rod Dreher, the columnist, <laughs> who I don't agree with really any on it, very little with him. Uh, and yet that, okay, that's interesting. Could we and then what is it about that experience? And yeah, I, I keep wondering, you know, is is it what things around beauty, culture, encountering there and having conversations? Is that like, could that be those kind of a key way for us to, to come together? It seems like Francis thinks so. And uh, be excited to, to see the things coming out from uh, the CRC at Fordham and inviting us into those those types of experiences. Exactly. But that's exactly Right. And I'm hoping we can do that. So let, let us pray. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, David Gibson, thank you so much for for the time and covering a whole range of uh, of topics and uh, really thoughtfully, as uh, I can always count on you to do. And uh, yeah, all the best. And again, we'll we'll be able to we'll make sure we share uh, your, your website and places where people can find you and uh, can stay connected with all the good stuff you're doing. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.